we have been studying the Gospel of John, and we are at the end. Uh, we are going to look at John chapter 20 this week, and then next week will be our final uh, sermon in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 21. Uh, after that, I don't, well, first of all, I don't know about you, but it has been like water to my soul, um, the Gospel of John has, and I hope that you feel the same way uh, in the time that we've spent in this book in the last few months. After that, we're going to do like a five or six week uh, vision series where we're going to look at our mission statement. Who are we? What are we about? What do we want to see God do in our midst? And then starting September the 10th, I will begin. We're going to move to the Old Testament. We want to have a balanced diet of scripture. Uh, there is an Old Testament and we want to spend time in it. And so we will be looking uh, at the life of David in First and Second Samuel uh, in the fall. And so just a heads up about where we're headed uh, over the next uh, few months. But if you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 19 through 31. I'm going to read that just to give us context. But we're going to really focus on 24 through 29 uh, this morning. So this is God's holy and inspired word. Follow along with me as I read starting in verse 19. The text is also printed on the screen behind me. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And Then the disciples were glad that they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. Come now and meet us through your spirit in this incredible uh, chapter of scripture. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning we come to the story of Thomas, 
and you, I feel like I say this every week, but I feel like this is definitely a passage that I really love in the Gospel of John and really in the whole, uh, in all of the Gospels. Uh, chapter 21 next week, uh, I love as well, but I love this, okay? And uh, I'll tell you more in a second, but th- let me remind us of where we are in the Gospel of John. Last week, Jesus was crucified. He was buried, okay? He was put in the grave. He's been resurrected, and now it is a week after the resurrection, so the first Easter Sunday, and the Apostle John, the writer of this gospel, inserts this story right at this moment. And it's very interesting. You know, people have given Thomas a hard time over the years. He's definitely, it says he's called the twin. Well, no one remembers that he was called the twin, do they? When people think of Thomas, they think of doubting Thomas. Thomas the doubter. And if you think about who Thomas is, look at verse 24. We mentioned that he was a twin, but he was also one of the original 12 disciples. And in John chapter 11, the chapter we looked at on Easter Sunday of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, when Jesus was thinking about going to see his friend who was sick, Lazarus, in Judea, the disciples didn't want him to go. They were hesitant. They were like, don't go, because if you go, uh, you will be killed, because the heat was starting to rise on Jesus at that moment. Jesus feels like he needs to go, and in chapter 11, Thomas speaks up, and you know what Thomas says? Let us go that we may die with you. And I think that's significant. Because you know what that tells us is that Thomas was committed. (laughs) Thomas was all in with Jesus. And I think we don't understand that oftentimes. We think, well, you know, Thomas was a doubter. He was flaky. You know, he, he was hesitant anyway. No, no, no. He was all in. He said, let's go die with Jesus. And so he, it wasn't that Thomas was not committed as the other disciples. He was, but Thomas was real. Thomas was just honest. He was just the one who spoke his heart in mind. And if you look at other accounts after the resurrection, other disciples doubted as well. And I'll talk about that as we go through the sermon. But Thomas was the only one who was bold enough and courageous enough to voice those doubts. And I don't know about you, but I am really thankful that this story is in the Bible. Because we need a guy like Thomas, don't we? Because you see, if we're honest, all of us in some way, shape, or form can resonate with this story. Because you've either been there where you have doubted, or you are right now in the middle of struggling with doubt. And so what is it this morning in your life that you doubt about God? What do you doubt about God? I'm sure there are probably a few of you here this morning that really struggle with the resurrection. You really struggle on whether or not to believe that. And so you have doubts about it. Or maybe you're here this morning and you have doubts about the existence of God. Or maybe your doubts aren't like that, but the nature of your doubts 
are about the goodness and the character of God. Maybe this morning you're like, I have a hard time believing that if God is God and you say he's good, then why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? So you have struggles with doubt because of the problem of evil. Or maybe this morning you doubt God's forgiveness of you. You have a hard time believing that God has really forgiven you or that he really loves you. Or you doubt God's care for you because it appears that he cares for everyone else but not you. And so you struggle with that because of the things that you have to deal with in your life. I have prayed forever for God to bring me someone to marry and he still hasn't. We have prayed for years for God to bring us a child and to give us a child. And he hasn't. I've been praying for that job for months. And I still don't have one. I begged God to heal my mom. And he didn't. My marriage, I prayed for God to heal it. And he still hasn't. You see, if we're honest, all of us in some way, shape, or form have struggled with doubt. And maybe you're struggling this morning with God's care for you. He cares for others, but not you. Or maybe you have a hard time believing God's will for your children is better than your will for your children. Or maybe you don't believe that there's anyone out there when you're praying. You doubt God is even listening to you. And we could go on and on and on. You see, we need this story this morning, don't we? We need it desperately. Because we have all been there or in currently in the midst of doubt. And here's the million dollar question. Is in the midst of your doubts, how is God going to treat you? How does he treat Thomas in the midst of his doubts? See, our passage answers that question this morning. I want us to see three things this morning in this passage. The reason, so why did Thomas doubt? Secondly, I want us to look at God's response or Jesus' response. And thirdly, the result, uh, what happens in Thomas's life. So reason, the response, and the result this morning. Let's look at number one, the reason. Why did Thomas doubt? Well, the first, I'm going to give you two, two reasons that I think are a little hard to see. Um, but the first one is that he neglected Christian community. And this is, I'd never noticed this before, but was blown away this week as I was studying. But almost every commentator that I read mentioned it. They made a note on how John went above and beyond to communicate. And if you look at the passage, these regular gatherings of the Christian community. Look at verse 19 and verse 26. In verse 19, it was the first Easter Sunday. And the disciples are gathering together. What are they doing? They're worshiping. And that's obvious because they were locking the doors because they didn't want the Jews to come and arrest them because they were worshiping Jesus. And Jesus shows up in that gathering. Look at verse 24. And we learned that for whatever reason, Thomas missed the worship service. 
He wasn't there, and Jesus shows up and revealed himself, and Thomas was a no-show, and what happens for the next week in Thomas's life? He doubts. He struggles with doubt, and I want to be very careful here because I don't want this to come across wrong. I am not saying if you miss a Sunday worship service, if you never miss a service, then you're never going to struggle with doubt. That is not true. Because doubt oftentimes is connected to your temperament or your personality or maybe you've had something really painful in your life that really makes it hard for you to believe. And so I'm not saying if you never miss a Sunday service that you're never going to doubt. Here's what I'm saying. One of God's great gifts to his people to counteract doubt and drifting away in our lives is what's happening here right now, every Sunday morning at 10.30, corporate worship. I'm going to use an illustration to help hopefully connect this, and it's going to be another beach illustration from our time on vacation. But you've all had this happen at some point in your life. If you're a beach goer, we're on the beach, Susie and I are in our chairs, the girls are in the ocean, they're riding the waves in. It's not a riptide, but a strong current. And all of a sudden, you look up, and our girls are like 100 yards down the beach, two condos down. We can barely see them. They can barely see us. And so they have to get out of the water because we're like, come on, come back. And they get out of the water, walk back, get in front of us, and do what? Go back into the water, ride the waves, and they end up drifting down the beach at 100 yards or so and do it all over again. You all had that happen. What's the scary part of that? It's they don't know that they're drifting. They don't know that they're two condos down. And you see, the only thing that can keep them from drifting is to be anchored, right? And just like a boat, what keeps a boat stable in the sea? Well, it has to be well anchored. See, one of the main anchors that God has given us is corporate worship. One of the main things he's given us to counteract our doubts is what's happening here this morning. Because think about it. All throughout the week, what happens? Well, our hearts, because the world is pressing in on us, our hearts get misaligned ever so slightly, don't they? We become disoriented in some way, or or the compass of our hearts and of, and of our life starts to point ever so slightly in the wrong direction. And God gives us this gift of corporate worship to restore our sanity. And to bring us together and to remind us what is right and true in the world. He gives us this gift to recalibrate the compass of our life ever so slightly. And remind us in the midst of our doubts that he is who he says he is, and that he's good, and that he has our best interest in mind, and that he really does love us, and he really does forgive us. And so we come, and we get together, and we recite these old creeds, and we sing these songs that are hundreds of years old, and we get from a book that's to Jesus for thousands and thousands of years, and it does something to our soul. See, when we neglect Christian community, it is to our detriment spiritually. Secondly, we see here, though, what leads Thomas to doubt is that he 
ignores the eyewitnesses. Did you pick up on that? Look at verse 25. So a week earlier, Jesus had appeared to the ten disciples. Remember, Judas has already betrayed him, and Thomas isn't there. And so he appears to the ten disciples, and they all, at some point in the next week, run to Thomas and say, Thomas, you're not going to believe this. We've seen him. And what does Thomas do? You're crazy. That is not true, and I won't believe it unless I see it and, and unless I touch him. What is Thomas doing? He's not listening to the eyewitnesses, is he? Work this out with me. He is being told about Jesus from the eyewitnesses who were alive at the time and who had seen Jesus' resurrected body. We have the same eyewitnesses' accounts this morning in the Word of God. The only difference is that the people are now dead. That's it. In other words, we have exactly what Thomas had. And think about it. John, I think it could be argued, was Jesus' best friend. One of the closest disciples to Jesus. And so John is writing, and as we read in verse 30 and 31, he could have written a lot of other things, but he chooses to just select a few stories about Jesus. But he is writing from not just a second, third, fourth account. He's given us this morning an eyewitness account of the things that he saw with his own eyes. And I say that because one of the common objections to Christianity is that these are just simply legends that were written down so far away from the original event that they can't be trusted. No, the Gospels were written within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. And so it would have been really easy uh, if you know, for this to be refuted or for Christianity to never have gotten off the ground if it were not true and these were simply legends. Think about 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul's talking about the resurrection. And listen to what he inserts. He tells the people that he's talking to, Jesus appeared, think about this number, before 500 witnesses in the resurrection. That's a lot of people. And if it weren't true, the word would have been out and this thing would have never gotten off the ground, this movement of Christianity. And so the Apostle Paul, in a sense, is saying, if you don't believe me, Go ask some of these 500 people that are still alive today and who saw it with their own eyes. You see, this should be enough. And isn't it, it enough for everything else in history if you think about it? Think about it. How do you know that things happened in history before you were born? Reliable eyewitnesses wrote them down and put them in a book, and you read about it in your history classes, and for the most part, you believed in them without blinking an eye. The eyewitnesses' account of the resurrection are no different. And that is why Jesus is telling us today in verse 29, Blessed are you if you believe, or if you have not seen, and yet you believe. See, Thomas was struggling with doubt, because he was not listening to the eyewitnesses. Some of us struggle with doubt because we do not listen 
to the eyewitnesses either. Secondly, the response of Jesus. Look at verses 26 and 27. Remember, Thomas says, I'm never going to believe this unless I see and unless I touch the scars. And so now they're all meeting together, and Thomas is present. And think, I just love this scene. And Jesus goes immediately over to Thomas. Immediately. And he says, Thomas, look at me. We don't know how Tom, now Jesus knew. He's God. He's all-knowing. He knew what uh, was going on inside of Thomas with his doubts. And he knew what Thomas was asking for and what he needed. And Jesus knows you this morning. And he knows what you doubt and exactly what you need from him this morning. But what I want you to notice is when he comes over to Thomas... Please notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't shame him. He doesn't go, how dare you? You were with me. You saw me. I gave my life for you. Why are you doing this? He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, I'm so disappointed in you, Thomas. You have everything that you needed, and yet you still doubt me. I am so disappointed. Get with the program. Jesus does none of that, you see. He meets Thomas where he is. In the midst of his doubts, and he says, Thomas, look at me. Put your finger here. Put your hand here. And friends, Jesus didn't have to do that. But Jesus is kind, and he's good, and he's gentle. And he meets him right in the middle of his doubt and his objections. One of the things you'll learn about me is I'm a sucker for an ESPN special. And normally, (laughs) I end in a puddle of tears by the end of it. You know these things that come on on game day at some point? Um, Well, there was one a few years ago, you might remember it, about Kayla Montgomery. It was called Catching Kayla. Kayla was a normal kid. Uh, very active, very involved in sports. And one day she just collapsed because she couldn't feel her legs. Was diagnosed with MS. And you know, MS causes nerve issues and muscle coordination issues and movement. And so she had to quit sports. She was no longer able to play and fell into a depression, was really mad at God, was mad at life. And then realized that she could no longer just have a pity party, but that she had to get herself together and move forward in life. And so she decided to do that. And she got back involved in sports, but she couldn't play any ball-related sports, and so she took up running. And uh, a coach, a running coach, took her in. And it was kind of a central part of her life. And this running coach became almost like a second father to her. And the coach, basically, because she couldn't feel her legs, that she would get going running, uh, and if she were to stop, she would just simply collapse and face plant. And so the coach, while she would continue to run, he would stand at the finish line, and when she would stop, she would just simply collapse into his arms, and he would catch her. And you could hear, if you go back and watch the video footage, he would catch her, and he would say, I got you, I got you. I got you. You see, unlike this coach, we often believe. I know I've I've been here. 
that God is begrudgingly bearing with us in the midst of our doubts. That instead of arms wide open across the finish line, that he's standing there tapping the foot, arms crossed with a scowl on his face, saying, get with the program. See, the good news of John chapter 20 is that just like that coach, Jesus bears gently with us in the midst of our weakness and in the midst of our fragile faith. John chapter 20 shows us that Jesus loves doubters and Jesus will not let them go. And he met Thomas in the midst of his doubt and guess what? He meets you this morning in the midst of whatever doubts that you are struggling with and the ways that you are struggling to trust him. Two points of application. First, one for uh, skeptics and one for Christians. So if you're here this morning and you really struggle with Christianity and whether or not it's even true, first of all, I'm glad you're here. You honor us this morning by your presence. But I hope this passage is an encouragement to you. Christianity welcomes your investigation. Jesus is not ashamed of investigation. He will not shame you. In fact, Jesus says, bring it on. He can handle anything you bring in him. And so bring your investigation to him this morning. Christianity is a religion that takes doubts seriously. And we want to be a community that takes doubt seriously. And so if you're here this morning and you have questions, I hope and pray that you feel like this is a safe community to ask those questions. And I pray that we will bear gently with you as you do. Because that's what Jesus does. Secondly, if you're a Christian this morning, I hope you see that doubt is not necessarily opposed to faith. They're not polar opposites. Because we see it all throughout the New Testament. We see doubt mixed with faith. And here's the passage that I still cannot get my mind around. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's before with his disciples. Okay, that's important. Disciples, these are people that are all in with Jesus. They're committed Christians. And it says there... Matthew says they worship Jesus as he was ascending into heaven and then he puts this little phrase that he didn't have to put and I'm still blown away by it because here he is, Jesus kind of going up into heaven. You know what it says? Some worshiped, but some doubted. Whoa. Some doubted. The book of Jude, have mercy, verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt. Maybe your doubt is not like that. Maybe it's a different kind of doubt. Maybe you look at your life and you say, I'm a failure, I'm struggling, I'm weak, I can't get a hold of this sin in my life, I should be further along, I should love Jesus better, but I don't. Maybe so you doubt God's love for you. Well, remember, the Christian life is is not about what you're doing, it's about what Jesus has done. It's not about your grip on Jesus. It's about his grip on you. It's not about your faithfulness. It's about his faithfulness to you, right? You've heard me say it's not Christianity. It's not about the quality of your faith, but it's about the object of your faith. 
Because if our standing before God was based on the quality of our faith, none of us would have a prayer. Why? Because sometimes our faith maybe seems real strong and sometimes it seems very weak. You know, it's about the object of your faith, Jesus. That is what saved you. Not the quality, because that puts it on you and it's just another work that you have to do in order to earn his favor. Thirdly, the result. Look at verse 27. I love this because Jesus doesn't let Thomas stay there. Okay, We're not, It's not good to stay in that place of doubting. And so he looks at him and says, stop disbelieving and believe. He commands him in the midst of his doubts to believe. He challenges him. And he does the same thing to us this morning. And so if you are in the midst of doubts, Jesus says to you, stop disbelieving. And he commands you to believe. Verse 28. Thomas does. Thomas goes from doubt to worship. And he says, my Lord, my God. And this is the highest confession of Jesus in the whole gospel of John. Even through all of the I am's. I am the bread. I am the resurrection. I am the life. This is the highest confession in the whole gospel of John. Remember how John started? John chapter 1, way back in January. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And then we have the bookends. We get to chapter 20, and we see Thomas saying to Jesus, My Lord and my God. And in doing so, he uses two words that are the highest names of God in the Old Testament. You see, he moves from doubt to worship. And the question is, how did he get there? Well, it's interesting because, I don't know if you picked up on this, but and commentators are split on this, but the text doesn't tell us that he actually touched Jesus. There's no indication that he did. I'm under the impression that he didn't. Because the feel of the passage is that he took one look at, he didn't have to. He took one look at Jesus and fell on his face and said, my Lord, my God. But here's the question that I had from the very beginning this week in my study. Okay, but if Jesus is resurrected from the dead and this is a glorified body, why the nail prints? Why the wounds? What in the world are wounds doing on a glorified body? I thought they were supposed to be perfect. Well, because you see, the wounds were more than just evidence that Jesus was alive. The wounds on the glorified body, because they were marks of grace. Marks of grace to Thomas. And it's just one more evidence of the goodness and the kindness of God. In other words, Jesus was saying to Thomas, and he says to us this morning, look at my wounds. Look at them. They mean so much more than simply that I am alive. Look at my wounds because they show you how much I love you. Look at my wounds. They show you how much I've done for you. And it was just that point in the passage what happened. My Lord and my God. 
he fell down and he worshipped. Heard a story recently about an adopted child who grew up the first 10 years of his life in, in, in a foster, in the foster system, in and out of foster homes his first 10 years of life. And then finally, a family comes along and they adopt him. So they take him from being a foster child to an adopted child. And it started out okay, but then the boy got angry and lashed out and was destructive, putting holes in the walls and tearing things up and uh, even violent at times. And so the parents are completely exhausted, thinking, what in the world are we going to do? And after one particular episode, they walk upstairs, the father and the boy, he hears the boy weeping and he's under the bed. And the father says, why are you so scared? What are you afraid of? And the boy responds and says, when are you going to send me back? And the father gets down, crawls under the bed, puts his arm around his son, and he says, I'm never sending you back. Because you're mine. You belong to me, and this is forever. And that started a lifelong process of transformation in that boy's life tell you that story because that's often the way we think about Jesus, isn't it? In the midst of our doubts. In the midst of our doubts, we are ashamed and we feel like going and hiding under the bed because we think Jesus is going to send us back because we're not good enough or we need to be stronger enough. And just like Thomas, Jesus comes to us this morning and in a sense, he gets under the bed and he says, look at my wounds. Look at what I've done for you. I'm never sending you back. Because you belong to me. And so will you come to Jesus this morning? Even come to him with your doubts. Because you can. Because you see he really is better than you think he is. Let's pray. Father, forgive us this morning uh, for all of the ways that we doubt your goodness. Would you, through your spirit, take us from unbelief and doubting to belief? Father, thank you for being patient with us this morning. We ask that as we come to the table, you would remind us of your goodness and care for us. In Jesus' name, amen.